Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode, I've got a very brief discussion of the dose response between PPIs and the risk of acquisition of COVID-19. It's one of those rare instances where someone on the internet says, go write a letter to the editor, and that person is in fact the editor. You won't want to miss this. Next up, I'm going to talk about time to treatment initiation in cancer medicine. Is it good? Is it bad? How do you make sense of these studies? This is going to be a philosophical discussion of research. You won't want to miss this. And our interview this week is Dr. Lenora Saxinger, who's an expert in infectious disease and hospital infection control. And you won't want to miss this discussion with overtures to COVID-19. So stay tuned. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, Darren Dolly on Twitter. You know, this was a thread that one of my favorite statisticians to follow, Dr. Darren Dolly, who tweets at StatsEpi, put out. And this is about, I think, COVID-19 publications. What happens when clinicians do research? Maybe a little bit too zealously and without the aid and support of good methodologists. So this is what it's about. It's about a new paper that came out that looked to see whether or not in a survey that was administered in a nationally representative sample, whether or not there's an association between PPI use, proton pump inhibitors, and the risk of acquisition of COVID-19. Now, right off the bat, you need to back up and you need to read a paper that Anupam Jena and I wrote in JAMA a few years ago called Pre-Specified Falsification Analyses. And the point of this paper was when you do retrospective observational studies looking for associations, you got to have some pre-specified falsification tests, some things that you claim at the outset should not be linked at all, and to double check that they are in fact not linked. Otherwise, you might be entering a space where you are dredging up spurious correlations. That's a paper that I encourage you to read. But the reason I think of that is because the example we use in that paper of a mountain of spurious correlations was none other than PPIs. PPIs have been linked to everything under the sun, in part because they're administered so ubiquitously. If I were to be perfectly honest about PPIs, I think the real question is, many physicians are frustrated with the poor data that supports the long-term use of PPIs. Of course, they're really useful if you've got a patient in your office with H. pylori infection and ulcers. They're really useful, of course, if you have a patient with gastric marginal zone lymphoma. Really useful. Are they necessary for any single person who ever has pain between their xiphoid process and their belly button? That's a question I don't know, but they are prescribed in a widespread manner. And I think that's part of the reason why clinicians are always looking for negative associations is because some people would like to see them prescribe less. But I would flip that question on its head. I think the burden to prescribe drugs is whether or not the drugs have demonstrated benefit for those indications and not necessarily to find or dredge up rare or idiosyncratic harms. I don't think that can be the burden. 
Anyway, I put all this aside, but there was a paper that came out in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. This study looked at 264,000 individuals who were invited by some proprietary company to complete a survey, of which 128,000 or 48% accessed the website. Of the 86,000 eligible respondents who completed the survey, 53,000 had noted prior abdominal pain or discomfort, acid reflux, heartburn, or regurgitation, and thus were asked about the use of anti-secretory medications. So we're going to look at that 53,000. Of that 53,000, 3,300 reported a positive COVID-19 test, which is 6.4% of the people who had abdominal pain or discomfort. And we looked to see, and we found that PPI use was independently associated with increased odds of reporting a positive test, even after adjusting for a wide variety of social demographic, lifestyle, and clinical variables. And there was a dose response, blah, 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 therefore, blah, 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 this made the news, blah, blah, blah. And the authors of the study don't see what Darren Dolly saw in 32 seconds and what everyone else saw really quickly. Let's look at table one. Table one. Of the 53,000 people, 20% are between 18 and 29, 27% are between 30 and 39, 48% are men, 51% are women, 64% are white, 8% are black, 4.5% are Asian. Educational levels, 28% have a high school degree or less, 25% have some college, 32% have a college degree, 46% are married, 53% are not married, 43% have a household income below 50,000, 29% have a household income from 50 to 100,000. Okay, that's the cohort. Okay, reasonable. But here's what gets real interesting. Male sex, 34%. Female sex, 65%. Much more likely to be women, apparently. Latinx, 70%. Okay, that's very high. Um, Non-Hispanic, black, 3.5%. White, 18.4%. Okay. High school degree or less, 70%, 69%. Marital status, 81% married. Employment status, 79% employed. Annual household income, 63% over $200,000. This is where it starts to get fishy because you got 70% of people who have a high school degree or less earning routinely over $200,000 a year, mostly women, and heavily Latinx. And this is a self-reported survey. When you see this, the first thing that's got a ring in your head is, damn it, the people who fill this survey are bullshitting me. Damn it. And there's a few things that should tell you that. Here's one. As of July 8th, 2020, which is maybe a month, a month and a half since the survey was being performed, we have 3.11 million Americans who have COVID-19 diagnosed. We have about 300 plus million Americans. So that's roughly nine tenths of 1%. That's the rough positivity level. And you know what? I'm not going to get into this huge debate about how many people have it and they weren't tested because of antibodies and Santa Clara and all that. I'm not getting into all that. I'm just saying that there's many diagnoses that have been made and that there's many people and it's about less than 1%. Okay. And that's now. This survey was done before. In the survey, somehow, they have a 6% response rate of COVID-19 patients. It's really, really high. So if it is as nationally representative as they think, um, they're going to have to explain to me why it is six times higher um, than the rate of COVID-19 right now. And at the time, it might be at least 10 times higher than what the rate was um, during that time. So that's one problem. The next problem they have to explain is just the basic demographics of the table, how is this so heavily enriched in Latinx? How is this a group of people that have 
a high school degree or less of 70%, but somehow they are really killing it on the job market, making over 200 grand a year. Uh, that doesn't fit with the average income of somebody with that level of education. Unfortunately, I think there's a huge problem with wealth inequality and income inequality, but that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying it doesn't pass the bullshit test. It sounds really fishy when you look at table one. And so that's what Darren Dolly says. He says, if you like Elizabeth Bix, spot the duplication challenges. Let me give you an easy one. Can you spot the batshit crazy table one, which is supposed to be describing an Ashley representative sample? That's his first tweet. But he turns it up a notch. He quote tweets somebody. While I commend them for their work, a few things jump out to me right away at the data tables. The sample of patients was heavily skewed towards a few demographics. This is Mario Alaya. Darren Dolly then quotes Michael Johansson. This paper has some major problems. Darren then says, what I find most shocking is there's zero discussion of these figures in the paper. They leap off the page. I just can't for the life of me come up with anything even approaching a plausible explanation for these splits. And then you see all these sycophantic tweets from other doctors that just remind you how little research active people actually understand. And he quotes a sycophantic tweet. And if you point this stuff out, the response is to write to the journal editor. And in fact, the author of this study said, feel free to write a letter to the editor, to the journal, and we can exchange ideas beyond 240 characters. Thanks for your interest. And Darren points out, but he is the f***ing editor. This guy's the editor. I was like, what? Uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. It says, write a letter to the editor. But you are the editor. <laughs> so just take my tweet, man. I'm telling you what's wrong with this. And Darren says, and instead of pausing for a second to consider the possible limitations of the quote-unquote study, hell no, we're making info sheets for patient. The lead author says, working on an info sheet for patient and patting ourselves on the back because the study was covered in Time Magazine. Popular heartburn drugs linked to heightened COVID risk. Time covers the study. And nobody seems to know or care that all caps, these data cannot be real. <sighs> oh boy, this is classic COVID. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just staring you in the face that people are just bullshitted on your survey. They've just told a fib or two. That's just what they're doing. And that's just what people do on surveys. You know, that's, that's part of the survey business. 0.09% of people in this country have documented COVID as of July 8th, 2020. You did your study a little earlier, so it's going to be lower than that. But 5.2% of people in this country like to bullshit on studies. And that's why you got a 6% positive COVID rate. You got 5% of people lying to you. And that's why they have a high school education, they're Latinx, and they're making 200 grand. That's the really the plausible explanation is that people filling out this survey just don't care. And they're just lying. They're just making things up. Just because, you know, to be honest with you, I get surveys in the mail all the time and I delete them. And if anyone really made me want to do a survey and you're not going to like, I don't know, do something for me, like compensate me for my time, I'm going to either fill it out with whatever the first bubble is or click to the end. And I hate to admit, but I've, 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 I've clicked through so many things in my life. You know what it's like to, to do all the things that we do to become physicians. We have to click through lots of things. And sometimes you just click through. And if you got, somebody gave you a, a survey you really didn't care about, you're just going to make things up. And, and anyway, I think that's not the problem. The problem is that 
there's such an exuberance to just report the discovery, to say the usual things like, of course, we can't exclude that this confounding that we didn't really capture, blah, blah, blah. But there's nobody who just wants to take a step back and point out that this just doesn't sound right at all. This just has got to be just totally wrong. It's got to be just people making stuff up. And that's that's got to be what it is. And you shouldn't be proud of publishing it and you shouldn't be proud of press releasing it and you shouldn't be proud. And it's a shame that Time Magazine doesn't look at that table and ask questions like, how are these people with a high school education or less in this country making 200 grand or more? That is spectacular income and that's unrealistic. And that's the problem here. So what's my takeaway? You know, I think people who follow this podcast should check out my YouTube channel. A few days ago, I put out a video called How to Write a Research Paper, but it really was a trick. It was a trick because the whole purpose of the video was to tell you how do you think about research questions and whether or not to do it, whether or not it makes sense, and to do it, to really sort of do that long periods of thinking. And I talked about when you get data back for a study, you got to just sit there, think about it, describe it. Before you do any analysis, just look at it. What is it telling you? What do you see? And the reason you do that is because if you had done that in this case, you'd say, duh, this company is giving me crap data and I can't use it. That's what you would have said. You wouldn't have published and you wouldn't have been so happy about it. But the real irony is when confronted with this damning fact, the decent thing to do is to say, give me a day. Let me sleep on this. Do a review overnight. Call some colleagues you trust and then come out the next day and say, you know what? I'm sorry. It's wrong. We're going to retract that paper. And you guys were right, and I missed it, and here's why I might have missed it. And and just to do that, you know, I think people will forgive you for it, you know? It's okay. Um, but to say write a letter to the editor, and you are the editor, and you're not taking the criticism by Twitter, that's part of what I think is going to make people kind of annoyed. And anyway, I don't want to pile on this paper anymore, although I, do found it, I did find it really funny. And they really got me. They really got me when they said, you know, just submit a letter to the editor, but but you are the editor, sir. <laughs> That um, that gets me. That gets me good. Um, on that positive note, we're going to shift to time to treatment initiation. So I saw a tweet. I saw two tweets this this last week that really made me think that this is something that I got to talk to the plenary session listeners about, particularly the Hemonc trainees, to get them to sort of think about this, I think, a little bit more critically. And I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions you want answered, but that's okay. I'm going to try to articulate how you ought to think about the questions. So that's, I hope, to be the goal. So this was a tweet that somebody said. I don't know who this person is, so I'm just going to redact their name. But they say, I saw a lady who had a three centimeter lung tumor in March and her surgery was postponed due to an embargo on elective surgeries. She came in yesterday with a malignant pleural effusion. This is something we as oncologists long feared. Cancer care is not elective. So what is this person saying? If you have a three centimeter lung tumor, I think by current lung cancer staging guidelines, you're either going to be a 1B, a 2B, 3A or 3B, depending on the nodal status. Okay, so if you come in right now with, let's say, a 3 to 4 centimeter tumor like this person had, and you're not giving me the nodal status, but let's use the 8th edition of TNM staging for lung cancer, you're going to be a 1B, a 2B, a 3A, or a 3B, depending on whether you're N0, N1, N2, or N3. Okay. Um, and if you look at probabilistic tables, as I've done a while back, and actually didn't do it to refresh for this podcast, but I did uh, have done recently, I mean, I think the breakdown is roughly 
10, 15%, one, 10, 15%, two, 20, 25%, three and like 40% four. That's like the rough breakdown of how lung cancer presents. So it's weighted more heavily, I think, to advanced disease. So this person is not telling us at the outset what this person's stage is. Perhaps the person, the patient did not have adequate staging, likely did not have complete staging done at the time. They knew they had a three centimeter tumor. They knew that, you know, things are going to be on hold because of COVID, you know, next question is, did it really need to wait till July? Could they have done a little bit sooner? Perhaps. But the entire purpose of this tweet, this person who had a three centimeter tumor now has malignant effusion. Listeners might not know, but malignant effusion is by definition stage four. So this patient presumably was an early stage lung cancer patient, at least the, the, the tweeter believed, and now with the passage of time is an advanced stage lung cancer patient. So I think, is it possible? So let's just articulate this person's fear. This person's fear is that had we done something sooner, we would have intervened, interdicted on this tumor when it was locally or regionally advanced and curative. Since we did not, we missed that window. It allowed it to metastasize, and now the patient is in an incurable setting. Ergo, this presumably has hastened this patient's death from a certain death from lung cancer, which is a stage four diagnosis to the possibility, although probably low, depending on which stage she was, depending on her nodal status, but the, the small possibility that we could have actually cured her of her disease. That's what this person is saying. And that's a shame. Lung cancer surgery is not elective because these things can happen. And I want to say that explanation is possible, but the person who's saying this if you really want to be intellectually honest, you can't just fall to that explanation. You have to really think it through. And there was one person in the comments, which I noticed a comment that I don't think many people even noticed or liked. This person said, you do have to wonder if there was already microscopic plural spread at diagnosis. That's what this person said. In other words, this person said, you do have to wonder if this patient were actually already a stage four patient and just by allowing time to pass, you allowed that stage four disease to declare itself, that the malignant effusion declared itself. Or alternatively, you could have perhaps in further staging, like a PET scan, you could have found some evidence of distant spread. We don't know. This is, you know, we're only getting a fragment of a story. But the question is, did the delay harm this person? And I guess I want to say there are two possibilities. One is that the delay did harm this person, that had this person had the surgery earlier, this person would have a better overall survival quality of life and may potentially have had a curative outcome where now they are destined not to. That's a possibility. The other possibility is that the delay helped them. See, it's not neutral, actually. It's that it helped them. Because if the person had microscopic disease there already, and let's say that was disease that was not going to be eradicated by adjuvant treatment, because quite likely, if the disease was going to come in visible quantities in the near future, it would have been unlikely to be eradicated, I think, by adjuvant therapy. It's quite possible that this person was helped because by waiting, this person is no longer on the aggressive surgical and radiation local treatment bandwagon and is going to get systemic therapy. See, of course, there's a reason why we don't do all that aggressive local therapy for malignant pleural effusion. It's because it just adds morbidity, but doesn't improve quality of life and survival. That's why we don't do it. It's never been shown to do that. And I don't want to get into the big oligometastatic debate. I'm happy to, I'm happy to take that debate when we have a large phase three study. 
Anyway, what about neutral? See, I think neutral is not a likely possibility. It either, it either harmed the patient or it helped the patient, the delay. I think neutrality is the position that's hardest to defend because the neutral position doesn't account for the fact that if the disease were already stage four at that moment, if it were already sort of incurable at that moment, this neutral position doesn't account for the fact that the interventions we were about to perform, not believing that, do carry pain and suffering by themselves. And thus, I think it's not neutral. That can't be a possibility. It either hurt them or it helped them. It hurt them because we missed a window to cure a person. That's the potential argument for hurt. It helped them because we allowed a disease that was incurable already to declare itself. So we spared someone unnecessary surgery. Do you see my logic there? That's what I'm trying to articulate. So it it either helped them or it hurt them. I think neutrality is un untenable. And I think what's really remarkable is that the person, like so many people in oncology, they view the patient's story through their own prism, their own glasses. And I, and I want to be honest with you. I don't know which of these two it is, although I do believe that it is statistically more likely to be one than the other. And I'm going to take you through maybe some of the thinking around that. But I don't know for sure. But every time I hear somebody speak about a case we always assume the default assumption in oncology is had we done something sooner, things would have been better and things turned out badly despite the fact we did everything. See, we, it's much more difficult for us to accept the fact that it would have been okay to wait and things would have been the same and that things were going to be this way anyway and what you did was you added toxicity and pain to someone and you didn't really help them. That's a lot harder narrative to take. And so whenever I hear people talk about narratives, whether it's not, you know, an old frail patient undergoes an aggressive invasive surgery or treatment or chemotherapy regimen and suffers a really bad complication, but then somehow they pull through and they have a good course. And so we credit the good outcome with the fact that we did do those things. What we don't see is that it's very likely, often it's the most likely outcome, that had you not been so aggressive, they would still be alive and well with slow growing indolent biology right now as they are now, but you would have spared them all that surgical complications and all those misfortunes. I think that's a possibility, but it's a really, it's a hard possibility because it makes you, it, it draws your identity in and forces you to ask the question of whether or not you as a doctor, even though you're well-intentioned and even though you may even have the data on your side, but whether or not you did something that did not help somebody, and that's very hard to take. But if you really want to be intellectually honest, you always have to have that exercise. So anyway, my point to this person is one, you got to entertain both possibilities. I do think, of course, that it is more common, the more likely scenario is that the delay helped this poor, poor person. I know it's really hard to understand, but I think it is for a few reasons. One, statistically, if I know only that the patient had a three centimeter lung tumor, statistically, I think among all people with that cancer, they're much more likely to be advanced stage than early stage. I think that's a fact. They're much more likely to be a four than they are to really be a one B. I think that that's a fact. I think the other fact of the matter is we know even in 1B, if they're 1B clinically, and they're not pathologic 1B, by the way, they haven't gone to the OR yet, and, they, and we don't know their true nodal status on the full di you know, on the full operative specimen. So they can be upstaged potentially, and they often are upstaged. Um, 
but it's it's almost unthinkingly rare that somebody has a three centimeter biopsy proven lung cancer and uh, on surgery they somehow end up with a one centimeter tumor. I mean, I think that the direction of going in a lower stage is less likely to occur, especially because of the way imaging is now. So you're much more likely to find something worse on surgery. Uh, this is a clinical 1B at best and more likely to be a 2B or a 3A or a 4, um, even when this person saw the patient initially. Um, we know, even with adjuvant therapy, a sizable percentage of these non-small cell lung cancer patients are going to recur. And they are recurring. Why? Because the cancer spread after you cut it out? No, because the cancer was already spread at the outset. That's why they're recurring. Because the cancer was already stage four. You didn't, you didn't have the imaging that diagnosed it accurately. In fact, in a perfect world, if we had really the PET scanner that you could see every single cancer cell, what would it do? What would that PET scanner do? And I'm talking about a world where let's hold constant what we do with CT screening. Because, of course, if you, if you throw that switch, you're going to really change this, this equation. But let's say we're holding constant how we diagnose people, which, to be honest, to this date is the majority of people are diagnosed not by CT screening, but through opportunistic scans or through symptomatic presentation. That's still the case because CT screening has low uptake. So in this world, if we have a magical PET scanner where we can see really, really fine occult metastatic disease, what will we do? We will move a lot of people in 1B, 2B, and 3A into 4. We're going to move those people there. We're going to be improving outcomes for early stage disease. But we know that a lot of these lung cancer patients with 3 centimeters tumors do have occult disease. So, you know, my personal view is, I think, given the sort of statistics by which lung cancer appears, given the recurrence rate by stage, given the nature of this disease to often be metastatic, I think my feeling, and given the time course, that the time course is actually quite swift from March, April, May, June, and already we're talking July, um, by June, within within 90 days, the patient has a uh, malignant effusion. My guess is that the commenter who wrote, you do have to wonder if it was already microscopic plural spread of diagnosis, I think that commenter is probably right. I think if I were to put a benchmark on it, probably eight out of 10 times, that commenter is right, maybe even nine out of 10 times. I think that's the sad reality. And so the person on the back end who feels like, boy, we really missed the opportunity is probably looking at it the wrong way. We actually, in a perverse way, have spared somebody an aggressive local therapy approach that wasn't really going to benefit them. Anyway, that's just my take on this anecdote. And I don't have all the details. And, and again, I'm, I'm just thinking sort of rough probabilistic terms. But now I'm going to get to what I actually want to talk about. When this article came out, there were a couple of people who piled on and they tossed in some research papers. One was a paper by Corana, which, which appeared in PLOS One. I publish papers in PLOS One too, but when you have a paper that has a large clinical implication for cancer patients and you publish in PLOS One, people got to ask why you're publishing in PLOS One, okay? And I know it's because you got rejected from a lot of other journals, okay? That's the only explanation. I mean, that's the likely explanation. Now, I'm not saying this got rejected from other journals. I don't know that to be the case. I just have my feelings that uh, you don't go to PLOS One. It's not the first place you'd go to. I mean, it's the place you go to when you've gotten a few rejections. So that's my feeling. And and trust me, I've, I've been there, man. I've been there. But, but when you have a paper that is 
not highly provocative and it's going to plus one and you've been rejected a lot, then I think it's possible that there's some methodologic concerns. And so anyway, this is a study that looks at the NCDB database, which is a database that is just horrendously overused for clinical questions, which has lousy covariates and is actually quite poor um, at answering many clinical questions, but yet is widely available and hence it's used a lot. And there's going to be some more kind of work on this coming out about how good a database this is. But anyway, that's another plenary session. These authors asked a simple question, which is if you were diagnosed with early stage breast, prostate, lung, colorectal, renal, or pancreas cancer between 2004 and 2013, is the time to treatment initiation associated with a better or worse outcome? And here's what they find. Increased time to treatment initiation was associated with worsened survival for stages 1 and 2, breast, lung, renal, and pancreas cancer, stage 1 colon cancer, but not prostate cancer and not, I believe, stage two and three colon cancer, right? Let me double check that. Increased time to treatment initiation. It's bad. In stage one breast, stage one lung, stage one colon, stage one renal, stage one pancreas, yes, but it's looked protective in prostate. Okay, in stage two, it's bad in breast, in lung, in renal and pancreas, but it looks protective in prostate and protective in colorectal. And in stage three, it's null in breast. It's protective in prostate. It's protective in colorectal. And it's null in renal, but it looks like it's not going great. Okay, so I mean, they generally find in a lot of cancers that it's bad, but in not everything. So that's the gist of it. Um, you know, there's some problems with this study. One of the problems, of course, is guarantee time. What does guarantee time mean? The way they're defining the cohort is you had to have a diagnosis in this database and you had to have gotten treatment in this database. So that means that the longer it takes you to get treatment, you had to have lived that long to be coded in that arm. No one can die before they receive treatment, right? So if you are on a one-year delay and 80 out of 100 people die while they're in that year, they're only going to look at outcomes and the 20% are still alive because that's the way they've defined the cohort. So that's a problem. That's called guarantee time or immortal time. And I don't believe they adjust for that. And it's very hard to see, though. It's only the first few weeks and they look at 60-month outcomes. Um, the guarantee time, I do think that's a problem. But now let me just talk about the other study. The other study was somebody who came along and said, well, I've got a study that looks at treatment delay in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And it looks like if you delay longer, you have better overall survival than if you delay shorter. And so this is in fact another paper um, that looked at a single hospital cohort and treatment delays of greater than 50 days had a median overall survival of 12 months and treatment delays of less than 50 days had a median overall survival of seven months. So it looks quite significant. But of course, for you to have advanced small cell lung cancer and get a 50 or 60 day delay before treatment initiation, um, that means you have to live 60 days and survive because if you died in those 60 days, uh, you're not included in the analysis. You had to have had the treatment. Um, and so that is a selection filter for indolent biology. If you look at treatment delays of four years, you're only going to have one in a thousand people still alive. And that's like the person with the most indolent biology tail of the curve kind of person. Okay. So what... What is wrong with these studies? Um, what do I want you to think about? I guess I would say before you do these studies, I think you have to think about, I think you have to think about what is the question you're really asking? The question people want to know the answer to is, I think, twofold. One, in the early cancer setting, 
If a patient has other things they want to do before they do that definitive surgery for their cancer, how long can they wait before it becomes unsafe or deleterious to their health? That's the question. Or alternatively, if you're in a European or nationalized healthcare system, what is the average wait time we can tolerate for the curative surgery in these local settings before outcomes get worse? I mean, is it okay to have on average six week or eight week wait times for colectomies and things like that? Or are we starting getting into bad outcome territory? That's the related question. Okay. Conversely, if you really go quickly, if you crank up your healthcare system to go really, really quickly, can you get a better outcome? Okay, that's the question. And the same thing is true in the advanced setting, which is if you have a person with non-small cell lung cancer and they come into your clinic, um, what's the longest they can get away with before starting therapy if they're feeling okay and they're feeling fine? Um, if it was picked up and they just have sort of small tumor burden, what's the longest they can get away with without starting therapy? At what point does it become dangerous to wait? Alternatively, do we improve survival if we start therapy really, really early? That's the question. Those, that's the clinical question. And that's the settings in which you'd ask the question. And I guess what I want to say is if you imagine a randomized control trial, we might imagine different randomized control trials. We might imagine a randomized control trial where one arm gets the usual treatment in a American cancer center. So there's going to be some distribution of patients. They're getting it, you know, the usual time to surgery. But in the intervention arm, we really try to speed things up. So we're doing breast surgeries as fast as we can, lung surgeries as fast as we can. And we look at overall survival. And I guess I would say I would generally be skeptical that a sort of strategy of rushing to start treatment would improve all-cause mortality significantly in the early cancer setting. That's just a gut feeling, but you know, that's a study that could be done. Alternatively, a European system could try two different strategies of whether or not an average four-week wait time or a 10-week wait time, which has better outcomes. We could do a randomized trial like that. Let's think about the advanced disease setting. We could do a randomized trial of, I think, a few treatment strategies. I mean, there are two strategies at least, which is one is you wait for the results of the molecular testing before you start in everybody, or in the other strategy, you give some temporizing maneuver, such as a couple cycles of chemotherapy while you wait for those results. And I think we can ask, is there better overall survival in one arm or the other? Let's say you're doing the randomized control trial of weight versus chemotherapy. And there's a patient who's assigned to the weight strategy um, who says, you know, I've just been, the last week I'm feeling worse and worse and worse. I don't know what it is. Um, you check their billy and their billy is starting to go up. They don't look too good. Um, would it be okay in that randomized trial to allow the doctor in exceptional cases to say, you know what, we, even though we're waiting, we're just, and even though we weren't going to give you chemotherapy, you're assigned to the control arm of just waiting. Um, you know, you're not looking so good. The billy's up. I'm a little nervous. Um, let's just give you a cycle of chemotherapy. I think the answer is yes, it is okay for people who start to present differently. Similarly, if you did a randomized trial in the early disease setting and you randomize people to, you know, we're going to say it is okay for you to take up to eight or 10 weeks to get your lung cancer resected or your breast lump resected. Um, and you can do other things in that time. Um, we're going to, we're going to say that that's okay in the strategy, but then the patient comes in on week three or four and says, you know what? I'm just super nervous. Even though I got assigned to the sort of longer arm, is there any way we can move it up? And then you can check the schedule and try to move it up. I think that's all. That's okay. Similarly, there are going to be people you assign to the delay arm who may die. 
And those deaths are attributable, perhaps, to the fact that you delayed and didn't give chemotherapy, and you want that weighed into your clinical trial. The reason I start to think about it as a clinical trial in my mind, and this is really, you know, I guess Miguel Hernan should get credit for this. This is a target trial framework. The more you imagine it like a clinical trial, the more you realize how to do the research study retrospectively and why it's so difficult. Because the reality is in clinical medicine, the people with early cancers who are getting the treatments quickly are often very different than the people with early cancers who are tolerating sizable delays. In the Corona study, they did notice there's association between race, income, and delays. And that's because people who are wealthy and privileged often do use their status to gain quicker access to surgery. There is a belief that delays are bad and people want things done quickly. And people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged may be more likely to tolerate delays. People who have to switch hospitals, people who are more rural. These are things that may affect the outcome independent of the timing of the surgery. And those are all getting baked into the, the observational data sets. Similarly, the patient with lung cancer who you look at and you're like, this person cannot wait for NGS. We got to give chemo right now. That person and might have different tumor volumes, different tumor biology than somebody willing to wait. I think the reality is, this is a question, you know, I started to go the next step and say, could you really even do a target trial framework? And I thought that, you know, you'd have to have an enrollment period by which they maintain stable status. Um, and then you'd have to randomize them to two strategies, one strategy, early intervention, the other strategy, delay. I think the best way to do it would be to duplicate the data set in the delay strategy, you censor anybody who gets treatment and then until a certain landmark point, and then you look at outcomes. And in the and in the early intervention strategy, you censor anyone who did not get treatment by a certain date, and then you look at outcomes. But the more I thought about that, that target trial kind of analysis doesn't account for the fact that there's going to be some people assigned to the treatment delay arm, the wait longer arm, who you do decide to legitimately treat earlier. I don't think it gets that that problem. And the more I sort of conceptually thought about how to do the study in a retrospective data set, I came to the perverse conclusion. And if there's any epidemiologists who think it can be done, having heard me articulate sort of the way in which I would do it, being cognizant of the fact that deaths can occur Bef while you're in the wait period, that's one problem, but that's a problem I think that we could kind of tackle. But the other problem is that a doctor can reasonably, I think, be assign a patient to a wait arm, but based on a change in clinical scenario, treat them earlier, even though they were initially assigned to a wait strategy, and they ought to be coded in an intention to treat fashion in that arm. So I don't think you can get around it. Let me try one more time to summarize my thoughts on this issue. The purpose of studies that examine whether or not people have better or worse outcomes from treatment delays is not to answer the question of whether or not people have better or worse outcomes from treatment delays. It's to answer prospectively for the person in your office, if they want to wait, if they want to push this off, do they have a worse outcome as a result? That's why you want the answer to the question. Or in a national hospital system, should you invest in resources to move this up and make it go faster? More surgeons, more ORs, those sorts of things. That's why you want the answer to the question. You will never be able to answer this question in a retrospective data set because the reasons some people get delayed and some people get things done quickly are deeply tied to the doctor's impression of the person, the person's wealth and economic assets and their ability to leverage treatments and healthcare systems. It's tied to all that. And in the advanced setting, 
especially in the age of genome drivers, the people you wait the longest without treating are people who have the least amount of disease and the most stable and they look the best. And you think it's okay to wait for the driver mutation status. In fact, they might be more likely to have driver mutations. Those are the people you're more likely to wait. And the people you give chemo early to might be much less likely to have driver mutations. And they might look really sick, and that's why you do it. And not all those covariates are going to be coded in the data set. In the early disease setting, the people who are much more likely to rush in to make room to treat are people who are putting pressure on the system through contacts, through resources, through networks to get things done. And so you're not really answering the clinical trials question. And the more you think about what a clinical trial would look like, how you would design and conduct it to ask whether or not it's okay to wait or better to speed, the more you think about the exceptions, such as a person is initially assigned to a wait to NGS result, but then week three, they start to look crummy and the doctor says, you know, maybe I want to treat this person. Of course, you would allow that because that's part of the art of medicine. That'll be built into that arm. You're not going to prohibit them from getting treatment. And the moment you think about that, how you would do the trial, you realize, how can I retrospectively go and code the data in a way that people are assigned to treatment arms in the same way they would be assigned prospectively to a treatment strategy? And I just don't think, I just think it's not possible. Even with the framework of Hernan, I don't think there's a way around that problem. What's the take-home message here? So Chris Booth emailed me, and Chris Booth does very good work, and he he told me to take a look at some of the work they're doing, and I haven't read it for this um, discussion, and I that's because I ran out of time. What I want to say about this is both doctors on the internet who have cited these studies are wrong. They're wrong to draw the firm conclusion that early treatment is better from these studies, and they're wrong to draw the conclusion that when they tell their patients it's safe to wait, that it is safe to wait. Those are incorrect conclusions to draw. These studies do not support those conclusions. They do not support those recommendations. There are studies we could do to answer that question. We're not willing to do them. They're difficult to do, but they can be done. It is a mistake to believe you know more than you do. The truth is you need to have some humility. Cancer is difficult. It is possible that for early tumors, there is some advantage to acting very quickly in some cases. Alternatively, it is also possible that you might get much more time than you think to do an early surgery. It's possible that a person with a three centimeter tumor who just a few months later has malignant pleural effusion, that you could have helped them had you intervened earlier and done the surgery. But it's also possible, in fact, I believe statistically more likely to be the case that that was a person who was destined to have metastatic disease and that by doing the surgery earlier, you would have just cut them one more time in their life than they needed to be cut. And they're not going to live one more day longer on this planet. And I think the challenge with cancer medicine is to recognize that we don't always know the answer. Some narratives are comforting. Those are narratives where our treatments work. When we don't do them, that's bad. When we do them early, that's good. Those narratives are comforting. And you can always find retrospective data that confirms those narratives because the narratives fit with our practice. We deploy aggressive interventions in people who look like they can take the aggressive interventions. And then we pat ourselves on the back when they do well, but they do well in part because they look better at the outset. 
we wait for NGS results longer in people who look well than people who look unwell. And then we tell ourselves that it's safe to wait because data suggests that people live longer if you wait longer. We ignore the immortal time, of course. This is a very problematic part of oncology. The truth is, some questions cannot be answered with retrospective studies. They can only be answered with randomized trials, but they will never be answered with randomized trials when, when people fool themselves into thinking they already know the answer. And I think that's the hardest part about research. That's the hardest part about research to teach, which is that there are some questions you cannot answer with the tools and data you have. And the last thing you want to do is try to answer them. The best thing to do is to say that I cannot answer this right now. There is a theoretical best way to answer this. It's a difficult thing. It's going to be hard to do, and they might not do it, but we should withhold judgment until that moment, and we should push for that thing. And so these studies, this mountain of evidence that triumph treatment initiation has some favorable worse outcome, and there's, of course, there's null studies too. These are not very reliable in my opinion. And and even I spent a great deal of time thinking about how I would sort of duplicate the analysis and do censoring like they've done with some statins analyses um, in a clever way. But I think that the problem here is very, is, is unique. And so I, I would urge some epidemiologists to think about this, um, especially somebody good in causal inference. I think the problem is unique because even when you're assigned to the delayed intervention arm, some people will be allowed to breach that protocol and get early intervention based on changing signs and symptoms. And that is something that doesn't happen in other studies of early diverse delayed initiation. So that's a very unique facet here. So on that positive note, and I'm not so sure I did a great job of explaining that, on that positive note, we're going to turn to a riveting interview that you won't want to miss with Dr. Saxinger, an expert in ID. And this is going to have relevance for COVID-19, and it's going to be a bit provocative, so you want to buckle up for this. Stay tuned. Well, I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Lenora Saxinger. Dr. Saxinger is Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta, Edmonton campus. She's a practicing infectious disease doctor, an antimicrobial steward, and a hospital infection control expert. And it's my pleasure to welcome her on plenary session. Dr. Saxinger, it's so, it's so good to speak with you. Uh, thanks very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So you're a, you're a practicing physician and you're somebody who cares a great deal about infection control. In fact, that's, that's your expertise. That's what you do day in, day out. Um, at a large, I mean, I'm not in charge of facility infection control, mm -hmm. but I'm very, very interested in uh, infection prevention and treatment across the board and, uh, and particularly interested in all the interesting developments in the mask literature over the last little while. Oh, yes. Uh, and uh, among other things. And that's why I, I saw your thread and I thought, you know, you'd be a wonderful person to talk to because I think, you know, you know, you do something that is difficult to do which is um, you, you, you're striving to be really exceptionally honest about what is known and what is not known, what the quality of the evidence is. But at the same time, you're not abandoning your position as an advocate. You still are, to some degree, an advocate. You're, you're, you're what, what I call sort of an honest advocate. You want people to do something, um, but you want them to really understand what that means and what that entails and be very honest about that. 
in contrast with, I think, advocacy, which sometimes can overstate the case, can make things seem more or better than they really are because they think that will get the outcome they want. But that is a very dangerous type of advocacy, in my opinion. You're nodding your head. I wonder if you might just talk a little bit about that philosophy. Your philosophy here is, um, you know, wanting to make good evidence-based recommendations, but wanting to be really honest about it. How, How do you think about that? Well, I think um, what I was perceiving is that our evidence base behind some of the things that are being discussed and recommended is actually quite weak. Like weak enough to actually be embarrassing Mm. that we had not been able to set up a way to fund and do the studies that should have been done actually before and after the 2009 pandemic influenza. So Mm -hmm. we have a lot of unanswered questions about prevention of respiratory viral infections in the community. And um, and I looked at this actually back in 2009 as well. And uh, and we, what we were seeing were people be looking at the same pretty poor evidence base and coming up with actually different conclusions mm-hmm. um, and expanding new literature coming out on things like fabric filtration and droplets and things like that and coming up with conclusions that to me kind of outstrip the weight of that particular type of evidence. Mm-hmm. And so although I want to prevent excess pandemic spread, of course. I actually almost consider it like informed consent. Um, we should tell people that this is what we're recommending right now and this is why. And if we're honest about the evidence base that we're using, it'll actually be easier to explain why our recommendations may change as our evidence changes. Right. Um, so I, I felt like the current evidence base was kind of being oversold or being looked at through a bit of a biased lens when in fact I don't think we need to do that I think that people are capable of dealing with reality and honesty and might even appreciate it yes and I agree wholeheartedly and I think that um, in addition to the fact that it might um, have these untoward effects on the public I think when you are overstating claims of evidence, you actually do a bad thing to the research agenda. And and we'll talk about that in a second. But I wonder if maybe at the outset, what might be helpful is, you know, this was sort of the last point of your thread, but maybe we should start with that and just really quickly say, um, you know, in order to prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2, you believe we ought to do several things. You're a supporter of several things. What are those several things? And then let's talk about the evidence for them. So let's just say, you know, you're a supporter of what do you support in an effort to control the spread of the virus? So I support basically layered prevention, Mm -hmm. which means that you're balancing off all the things that appear to work um, and have varying degrees of evidence. And so um, distancing definitely makes a difference. And there's no doubt that in the Wuhan experience, their lockdown profoundly affected the reproductive number of the infection in their community. And part of that was just shutting down people contacting each other. Right. And then after that, actually, most of the spread was within households, which is also what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And so that's a a core measure. And so physical distancing, whether that is by means of lockdown or people voluntarily decreasing the amount of times they contact people and then choosing to stay farther away when they do contact people is just clearly a sensible thing to do. And there is actually reasonable literature um, to support that as well, like in terms of one and two meters and things like that. It's observational, but useful. Yes. And then the next thing is hand washing. Yes. Things that I found so fascinating about the randomized control trials of mask wearing, particularly in university dorms. Yes. They would actually randomize groups of students to wear masks um, or wear masks and do hand hygiene. Or nothing yes. for education, which yes. is kind of like nothing sometimes, I think. Um, and in those studies, there was really no signal for masks alone, but there was a suggestive signal for masks plus hand hygiene. Yes. And that was back in 
that was I think from probably at least 10 years ago. But I remember looking at that and thinking, why is that? That surprised me that masks would not have that much of an effect. But when you added in hand hygiene, that seemed to be the bigger effect. So that raises questions about really the predominant mode of transmission. Yes. Um, and it it uh, and it's hard to account for, but it's important to account for it. Yes. So yes. that happens when we start focusing on masks, 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 masks for all masks will let us open up the economy is that we're actually neglecting the messaging for the other four measures. Yes. Um, and and I think that the focus on masks has kind of gotten us to a place where people are forgetting about that, and they're imagining that masks might actually substitute for all these other measures. Yes. Um, at least that's how it feels. It when feels you, that way. When you see how people interpret. I mean, I, I haven't done an empirical study, but if I were to go on Twitter and sort of um, empirically catalog the types of public health messaging by doctors and public health experts, I suspect, I don't know this to be true, but I suspect you'll have a lot more for masks than you will for hand hygiene. It's not uttered in the same breath as it ought to be, is, is one of your points. That's right. I kind of go distance hand hygiene masks. Right. And, and perhaps in that order. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the bundles, like in countries that have done well by implementing those measures as uh, as long as all the as well as the population measures, um, they they've done well with the whole package. And so I think it's wrong to peel one piece out of the whole package when we don't have enough evidence to do that. I think we should be applying the whole works all the time. To be to be honest, and I think um, overselling masks also leads to the possible risk that if they contribute less to the whole bundle of prevention that you might actually be doing some relative harm um, mm -hmm. by focusing on them too much. And then let's also talk for a second before we get into all the data. Um, and um, I, I just want you to mention, um, you're also a supporter, of course, of test, treat, isolate, of contact tracing and isolation strategies. Um, in addition to um, social distancing, hand hygiene and masks, you also support test, trace, isolate. Is that fair to say? Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, on a on a... I guess more public health unit level and government policy level, um, if you have spread in the community but you are able to rapidly test and rapidly contact trace, ask the contacts to isolate, that has been key in a lot of countries where they've actually do these big centralized quarantine studies um, and and you find the contacts and they isolate and get tested and get followed and that basically curbs further spread because this spreads so quickly. Yes. Um, that turns out to be another important thing, especially as soon as you start having more contacts within the community when you try to re release the public health uh, restrictions. Um, you have to have that test trace isolate in place. Otherwise, you go right back to where you were. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I, I say this all to open is just just to just to get a sense of the fact that I mean you you're you're somebody who's broadly supportive of a multimodal strategy to combat the virus, um, and and your your analysis here is what we're going to talk about is a little bit is strictly based on the best available evidence, which I think the hard part to admit. Um, and the part that shocks me is that people are unwilling to admit that in many cases that best available evidence is is really, really sadly woeful. I mean, it's a shame that we didn't have better evidence. And to some degree, it's a shame that we're not using this as an opportunity to collect better evidence going forward. And I think so. I guess that's kind of how I wanted to frame the beginning of our discussion. Would you say that's a fair, oh. fair characterization? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think uh, what worries me right now is that the zeal for masks, and I'm using that word like like zeal, it really is zealous, yes, that's what um, I think. might yeah. actually make it very hard to do studies that I think still think are important because quantifying um, the, the benefit um, of masks 
is incredibly important. We're, we're not through this pandemic by a yes. long shot. We're, we're like, what, maybe a quarter into it if we're lucky. Um, so there's a lot of pandemic left to go through and going through it by learning from the early stages, I think is the most responsible thing to do. And I'm, I'm quite concerned that the current, um, almost politicization and um, polarization of the debate will make it hard to do the types of studies that we need um, to tell us what the best things to do are. Yeah. And that's a sad state of affairs, honestly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I have some, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. So let's talk for a second about the masks. I mean, you cited one piece of evidence, which was a randomized control trial performed in a college dormitory setting where it's a lot of people in close quarters. The infectious agent in that case, of course, was not SARS-CoV-2. I believe the study you're referring to was uh, during influenza outbreak. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's influenza. A lot of the data on masks is in influenza studies, especially randomized trials. The only data we have from coronaviruses are from SARS and MERS and a little bit from COVID-2. And they are, um, and they're all observational. Right. So, um, there is a community mask study, which has been enrolling in Denmark, um, since I think April. So I hope that um, that they were able to enroll enough to be able to share some data from that because I think that will be very important. Yes. Um, especially as a lot of places are looking for mask mandates. To me, it's hard to mandate something on the basis of the evidence that we have right now. Yes. Um, but I mean, just to just to make one thing clear is that um, it is reasonable, I think, to extrapolate uh, randomized control trial data in the influenza setting to SARS-CoV-2. Um, do you agree it has sort of comparable, I mean, to the best of our knowledge, it has comparable transmission dynamics? Is that fair to say? Yeah, the, uh, the R-naught range, the household attack rates particularly, which is, um, I think, kind of relevant to this. So the household attack rates are very similar. Um, influenza, they're usually 15 to 20 percent, and in uh, COVID, the household attack rates range from 7 to 20 percent. Uh, the highest I've ever seen was 25 percent for like co-sleeping spouses, and so that that kind of tells us that the um, the reproductive number is quite similar or similar enough. And the transmission dynamics appear to be also fairly similar. And so the big difference, I guess, for COVID-19 is that we still suspect that a lot of people might transmit infection prior to becoming ill in a way that they recognize. And so pre-symptomatic or posse-symptomatic spread. Yes. So that does make it a bit trickier to extrapolate. But on the other hand, I think most people also would say that if you have someone who's coughing or sneezing near you, it's moderately a higher risk transmission setting right. as well. And so in these studies, they were mask they were masking like everybody all the time as exactly, well as much right. as possible. So yeah. I think it's still relevant. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and, and so so that's that's what I wanted to get it. And and then the great advantage I think of the randomized trial data, even though it is a different pathogen, is that it is not subject to many of the biases of observational studies. One of which you've alluded to, which is that. Often, you know, countries and settings uh, that deploy one intervention are deploying many interventions at once, and it is very difficult to disambiguate the contribution of each relative intervention. In contrast, in the randomized control trial data, they can be disambiguated because one's arms are not being randomized to certain strategies. Um, and then the other thing is, um, you know, there are all sorts of unmeasured confounding variables in terms of the places that are more vigilant about uh, viral transmission may be the ones implementing policies earlier. And it might be that other vigilance and not necessarily the policies itself that have led to the better outcomes in that uh, village or province or region. 
uh, fair to yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people like to point to um, curves of the epidemic in various settings and then circle countries and say, well, they use masks and they don't. And I think that that's, um, that's been something that I've, I've found uh, difficult <laughs> all along. Uh, and, and I think that one of the problems is, is that it's very, I guess, intellectually appealing and it seems, it seems intuitively correct. And likewise, wearing something over your nose and mouth to prevent spread of something that you're exhaling through your nose and mouth also seems intuitively correct. But in actual fact, the data doesn't really suggest that. The, the data actually suggests that hand hygiene is at least as important. And so, and so there, there's a lot of issues, I think, with the weighting of the different types of evidence. Um, and to some extent, I think, unfamiliarity with methods of weighting different types of yes. evidence that has come through. Yes. I mean, by that you mean you have a lot of people interested in a question um, who don't typically sort of make these evaluations in medicine. And in medicine, we know um, that, you know, certain types of evidence, um, laboratory experiment evidence, um, observational studies, these tend to be very low uh, reliability and randomized control trials tend to be much higher because we have been burned many times before. Um, but now you have a lot of folks entering into uh, an evidence-based debate uh, who don't have that sort of uh, accumulated knowledge uh, of, of how to sort of rank and prioritize evidence. Um, and that might lead to sort of overstatements, even with the best of intentions. Absolutely. And, you know, that's the other thing that I think is important to recall, especially when things are getting heated and people are like they want to do the best they can to protect the population. And it, it can get heated because I think there's um, a perception on one side that saying, well, we don't really have great quality evidence um, is seen as being anti-mask. I've been right. accused of that so many times. And I'm like, did you get that part where I was saying distance hands wash masks? Because I'm not anti-mask. Um, I'm kind of more pro, pro-truth. pro um, But I, they, they get very upset. Um, and, and I think that uh, it's important for us to remember the common ground is, well, we all want to do the right thing. The other piece that people get hung up on, I think, is when we talk about could there be a downside to focusing on masks. And aside from detracting from the other messaging, um, people have talked about things like to keep, you know, behavior differences. Um, so risk compensation behavior. So if you wear a mask, does that mean you're more likely to go out? You're more likely to be closer to people. You're less likely to wash your hands. And we honestly don't know. So the evidence base there is largely mute and yeah. it's starting to evolve and it will be important to look at. But we honestly don't know if there could be downsides, but people don't want to even accept that there could be a downside. So it's a, it's a very strange place. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, I think that, that I, I read a couple studies and one study suggested that there was not that level of risk compensation, but another study seemed to hint that there might be. But I mean, I think that's a very evolving and, and sort of nascent um, um, subfield. But, but let me just start with, I mean, there are a few things I wanted to, to kind of have you discuss. One is um, one type of evidence that I think uh, is just really baffling to me that it's gotten so much credence is obviously when you take somebody and you put a mask on them and ask them to sneeze in sort of a very high resolution camera, um, that it's clear that if you put a mask on someone's face, there's going to be less particulate spread or, you know, th less droplets coming out of their nose than if they don't have the mask on. So you see these sort of viral videos of somebody sneezing with the mask on, not a mask. Um, some people say, you know, they take that that is a very high level of evidence that, of course, if I'm wearing this and I sneeze, it's going to catch most of it. Um, that's got to be better. Um, uh, in your thread, um, you know, you you put quote unquote evidence um, and then you said lab droplet studies. Um, how do you think of this as a level of evidence and, and why um, I think you're going to say it's poor? And then why do you think it's poor? I think that the... Um 
I mean, a lot of the discussion has been coming from people who are interested in like aerodynamics and droplet and airflow and and aerosols. Um, so all these areas of, I guess, physical world science. Mm -hmm. And I think that it does seem intuitively strong. Um, it seems robust as a theory. Mm -hmm. um, but when you actually get to the point of transmission of a virus within a community, it turns out to be really, really, really complicated. And it, um, and all of the factors that can go into a series of transmission events can vary from, you know, the individual's airspace, the airflow, how much virus they have in their upper respiratory secretions, um, whether or not they have sneezed into their hand as they're, you know, instead of their elbow, and then they grab the doorknob, then you grab the doorknob, then you touch your eyes. There's, there's a lot of complexity in actual real world transmission events that is really, um, really much more complicated than simply just filtering large droplets. I think respiratory hygiene is actually a legitimate argument for masks. I think that, in effect, they're kind of like wearing your handkerchief on your face to catch the large drops. Yes. But it does also seem like there's a lot of transmission that is happening that is not just based on that kind of sneeze-in-your-face type spread. And so we don't want to oversell the benefit of that. And yes. particularly in this disease, because people get a high amount of virus in their upper aerodigestive tract early on. Um, so it seems like there is at least a good chunk of spread isn't necessarily from the sneezing and coughing. Um, and I don't know if wearing a mask actually helps prevent that all that well, particularly when the, and we're going to have to get here too. When we talk about a mask, um, fabrics filtering ranges from like 3% to 60%, depending on the type of fabric. Um, and the properties of fabrics make a big difference. And so when we talk about community masking and cloth masking, it's actually a very varied um, intervention. Like it's not, it's not a single quantity and that masks vary a great deal in how well they work and how well they fit. And so that's another problem I have is I think we need to be a little bit more um, clear about what we think a cloth mask should look like um, because you can buy a lot of stuff right now that's single-ply cotton and probably close to useless, but it meets the letter of the law, and I'm not sure that's very useful either. I see. Um and and I mean the studies that you cited, the college dormitory studies, and there've been there've been many other sort of cluster randomized trials in influenza outbreak settings, typically healthcare workers kind of studies, um, or nursing home settings. Um, uh, the typical masks used are surgical masks, which have um, different characteristics, including sort of um, uh, a sort of a barrier uh, between um, the uh, exhaled air and and the and uh, and the person's mouth um, that is known to sort of capture a higher level of particles. Is that fair to say? A polypropylene yeah, barrier. Yeah, you can get cloth. Yeah, so the cert, I mean, medical masks generally do better, um, or surgical masks or procedure masks, but you can just call them medical masks. So they have um, they have fairly well known characteristics, and they've been tested for their filtration efficiency, and they usually come in um, within a range of of filtration that obviously does help because they also protect healthcare workers in healthcare settings in viral transmission. And so that type of mask would be what these studies have been done with. Um, and there's only been one study where cloth masks, like explicitly cloth masks were used as part of a randomized control trial. And that one was actually deeply non-reassuring. So that was a healthcare study where they had um, 
healthcare workers were randomized to continuous masking with either cloth masks or uh, medical masks. And then the third arm, I think they, because it was influenza transmission season, they did not have a no mask arm, they had a usual practice arm. So it was really a comparison between whatever that healthcare worker usually does with masking during flu season and continuous cloth mask and continuous um, surgical mask. And in that comparison, cloth masks actually had the highest risk of infection. It was about 1.5 or 1.6 fold higher in the continuous cloth mask arm than in the intermittent other like intermittent masking arm. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that we've actually even fully excluded that there might be situations where a cloth mask may increase your risk. Like that's not been excluded by the current studies. This is the uh, McIntyre study, 2015. Yeah, and, and the nice thing about the McIntyre study, I mean, I think, um, you know, obviously people have can dispute it, but I mean, I guess I'd say, um, what are some of the strengths of the McIntyre study? The control arm, um, you know, this is, you, you know, it's not that you're never allowed to use a mask. You're only allowed to use a mask when you choose to use a mask as a healthcare worker in the flu season. Um, so that to me is a fair control arm, um, rather than, you know, actually per- actively preventing people from using the mask. And it did appear that the cloth mask in cluster randomized fashion in the McIntyre study Study, had an increased uh, rate of, of, of viral spread in, in the group that was assigned to the cloth masks. Um, one of the things people say is that the mask is not intended to prevent you from acquiring the virus. It's intended to prevent the virus from being exhaled or spread outward. Um, but your point in, in when you responded to one of the people who tweeted that was to say, well, you know, these are randomized control trials where they're measuring acquisition of virus in the entire cohort. And whether it stops it on the way in or stops it on the way out, that will be accounted for in the way it's measured. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. And so, I mean, I think that that's people going back to the idea that we're, what we're trying to do is formalize cough respiratory etiquette by using a mask. Um, and prevent transmission from an infected person outwards. And as a matter of fact, that's what the World Health Organization has kind of centralized their messaging around as well for cloth masks in the community is that what we're trying to do is reduce spread within the community, although there's not a lot of direct um, evidence for that. Um, but in the healthcare worker studies, they were really looking at acquisition of infection in the healthcare workers. And so I think that's relevant to the discussion as well. And so, um, yes, the, the study designs would work both ways, essentially. Um, but the current messaging formally from public health is that we're trying to reduce spread from infected people. And part of that is also, if we want to start getting into deeper waters, um, whether or not eye protection should be recommended right. in addition to a mask when you're trying to pr- protect yourself. Now, having said all that, I think most people, when they wear a mask, I think that there is at least a proportion of people who are feeling like they're wearing it also to protect themselves. Right. Um, I agree. No matter what the messaging says. Right. So I think that we should, you know, look at the evidence both ways. So I guess, I mean, Paul Glazius um, from uh, Bond University in, in Australia, an expert in evidence-based medicine, you know, he makes the point that one of the things that would be kind of useful to see is a cluster randomized control trial of people in the community setting randomized to mask wearing or face shield, um, because face shield, you're going to get that eye protection. Um, and, uh, and, and and that's just one possibility, but there are a number of different randomized control trials, you know, in some places, as, as is being done in Denmark. Um, there's a randomized control trial of mask wearing versus versus usual practice, but not mask wearing in the community setting. Um, and, and that's supposed to be a 6,000 person randomized control trial. I guess the point here is that um, uh, 
even if one is a supporter of, you know, doing sorts of things, um, of which, you know, I am actually a supporter of, uh, and I will wear my mask, um, one can imagine that there are a number of sort of really important randomized control trials that could be done to either, A, better quantify the benefit, uh, if any, that masks provide in addition to hand hygiene, social distancing, um, two, to ask whether or not alternatives that may have higher compliance or um, higher likelihood of use of correct use, uh, such as a face shield, which, you know, many people find less irritating, um, the ones that have sort of that foam pad over the forehead and, and keep the polyethylene glass sort of a few inches away from your face, um, that these might have comparable benefits, perhaps even greater benefits. We don't know. Um, and we won't know unless we sort of do well done studies in this setting. Exactly. And I actually think the face shield question has been getting a lot of airtime, but again, it's an embarrassing lack of data. Um, our research agenda has not addressed this type of thing very well to date. And um, the inf the you know, the evidence for face shields also keeps on getting sliced and re-sliced and diced, um, but there's not that much there. Um, they, in, in a study, basically reduced direct droplet exposure in a lab-based um, droplet study uh, by 96% in the very short term, but then over the ensuing 20 minutes, it only reduced the, the droplet exposure by something like 26%. So... I don't want to oversell the possible benefits, but they do have some advantages, including then people can lip read, you can see the face, you can have that kind of human face-to-face -face interaction, and mm -hmm. and they might have benefit in some settings, but it, it really is a bit of an unknown quantity as well. So I, I think that um, the there has been some interest and uptake in promoting face shields over masks, but I myself would be reluctant to recommend that until we actually have some real-world data on how much and in what situations a face shield might actually be protective. So it's theoretically attractive, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that are theoretically attractive that turn out not to work. Exactly. That is the that should be the subtitle for medicine, which people forget for the last 100, 200 years. Uh, lots exactly. of things that we thought were theoretically attractive turn out not to work. Uh, the more you practice medicine, the more you see that. Uh, and therefore, it's really important to do the right studies and not just uh, rest your laurels on theoretical attractiveness. Um, one exactly. of the things you said that that maybe I'll push back a little bit on, which is, um, you know, mandates, I guess I would say, I mean, just my two cents on it. And of course, I, I think this is something that maybe that's not an evidence based question. So there's maybe no right answer. I guess my view of the mandates is, you know, I think governments can mandate anything they want, really, they can mandate, you know, they can close freeways, they can close the schools, they can close restaurants, they can close shops, they can close shut down the whole place, they can mandate masks, they can mandate, but they haven't chosen to have hand hygiene pumps at the front of like grocery stores and make somebody supervise you pour that gel in your hand and rub your hands for 30 seconds. You know, that's something I haven't seen, uh, but they can mandate that. They can mandate wearing goggles. They could mandate face shields. They can mandate all sorts of things. I mean, in my opinion, I think, um, you know, I'm not a legal expert <laughs> to know about that, but I think that, they, you know, the, in, the, in the throes of sort of a severe pandemic, um, if things are really bad and, and, and cases are escalating and death toll is escalating, you know, I don't think there are many of us who are going to protest if they implemented all of these things. But I guess the, the, the question is, uh, and I'll let you have jump in in a second. But the question I think is not, I don't know what people have the legal authority to do. The question is that good governance, sound, rational policymaking is that, you know, when there is uncertainty, 
Um, I, I, as a policymaker, would not be in the mandate mood. I would be in the randomized mood. So maybe county by county, I can implement different strategies. I could have a cluster randomized trial across a couple states at a county level or at a municipality level. In one city, I could mandate, you know, squirting gel in hands plus face shield in the other city. You know, I could do in a factorial design kind of thing. And in a short period of time, I might, you know, realistically be able to answer many important respiratory pandemic questions, not just for COVID, um, but for future viruses in the future. And I think that not doing that is a lost opportunity. Um, now I'll, I'll let you jump in. How do you think about this? Um, the question of mandating and, 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 and randomization and how you would kind of think about those two things. Right. Well, I think that um, you made an important comment around mandate is um, I was kind of thinking about our local context and I'm in Edmonton, Alberta. We have low rates of community transmission that mm -hmm. we're watching nervously. Um, hospitals are pretty clear. I was on call for the weekend. I saw two COVID cases in our whole hospital. Um, so things are fairly under control. And in that setting, I think that a mandate might actually not necessarily have the effect that we want, especially if it's a mask-only mandate. And I would change my thinking on mandates, I think, with two things. One of them is, if we have an uncontrolled situation, I would be much more interested in whatever potential benefit we could get. Gotcha, I see, um, right. yeah. Because I think that the risk-benefit starts to, to change there. Because right now, if we had a mandate, and you look at enforceability, and you look at people who are disadvantaged, um, and don't have a lot of free funds to buy a mask um, and the enforcement and who's going to provide the masks and all those things become, I think, kind of messier, especially if the the rationale for using them is not as strong because we aren't in that scenario. We're not quite as good as New Zealand, but I'm sure that there'd be no point in a mask mandate there either. Um, so we're in a the context of our epidemic, I think, makes a mask mandate something that I would be more willing to look at with better evidence. And if evidence came along that I thought was really compelling, I would definitely jump in with a mandate. But in the absence of that, I'm, I'm kind of less certain. And the other thing, I guess, is um, kind of plays off what you were saying just now, which is if we were going to mandate anything, I think we should mandate all of it, not just part of it. Mm, right, um, right. And, yeah. and, and that becomes a, an opportunity, as you were discussing, to see what happens. Um, and, and I think that um, the combinations that you were discussing, like the kind of thought experiments that you were doing, seem to me like they should be something that happens. And I'm just not sure if we're going to have the ability to do that, even though I think there's equipoise on the research questions. Yeah. Just because the polarization in the media discussions, social media, might make it impossible to, to actually carry it through. And that would be a terrible, uh, terrible loss of opportunity because, as I was saying, this is not the end of the pandemic for a long time yet, and we still need to know what to do for the latter parts. Um, and also, this might not be the last respiratory virus pandemic that we come across in our lifetimes, and so we should try to to bank up some information to assist us for the next one. So it's um, it, it's complex, and I'm so I'm not actually against mandates, but I do think that the situation in which mandates occur should be informed by the local epidemiologic context. And also they should be informed by potentially looking at a bundled mandate, not just masks. Yes. 
And I guess the only, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. So you're not philosophically opposed to mandates. If you were in New York City in February or March and cases are just soaring and, tra- and there's, you know, widespread transmission, then you're going to say, okay, let's just shut this down, do all this stuff right now. On the other hand, based on where you are right now in Edmonton with low rates of community transmission, that's when you think, that's when you really have to ask these tough questions. And I guess my point of view is I might even mandate, and I don't know if I would mandate it or just kind of, but I don't know. I, I'll have to think about it more. Um, but I think that I might even do, I would sort of think that governments should be in the role of getting randomized trial data. They can do different mandates in different counties. And I think that would be acceptable um, to see if, if which of these components is the most important and, 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 and which is the most sustainable. I mean, that's another thing, which is that we might be in it for the long haul and have to do things um, for 12 to 18 months or even longer. Um, and, and you don't just need interventions that are effective. You need them to have sustained a- efficacy. Um, and that's a tricky thing because, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into anecdotes, but when I walk around, I see people wearing masks inappropriately or, or, you know, doing things um, that, probably are thwarting the benefit of the mask. I kind of want to pull my hair out. But I mean, you do need strategies that people can live with and and that will persist for a while. I certainly agree with that. I mean, I, I think that it is, it is, we, we have to figure out what people can make part of their daily life and still function to an extent and maintain um, community transmission at sufficiently low levels that we can proceed um, with a functional life and a functional society um, for for the foreseeable future and um, and and so I guess if masks are part of that then we have to do a better job on messaging what the masks should be like how they should be worn um, they actually subsequently retracted that study that suggested there was a lot of virus on the outside of masks after people coughed and sneezed right the annals of internal medicine study yeah that was a bad study they don't know their uh, PCR yeah exactly <laughs> I'm like yeah. oh dear but yeah. um but I mean, that, that kind of did raise the question about does wearing a mask, if you're not also really hardcore on high, hand hygiene, could that increase your risk? Because if you're infected and you're sneezing or coughing or exhaling, talking moistly, as our prime minister said, into your mask, um, and then you're handling it, does that actually concentrate virus that you're then spreading around with your hands? And yeah. so that's one of those unintended consequences that you'd like to make sure is not an issue. So so we have to kind of build it in so that the best thing to do is the easiest thing to do is the expected thing to do. And we're a little bit far away from figuring out the best part yet. Yes. And I mean, and the other reality is that mask uh, rules only apply to a small percentage of your daytime. And so you're at home and coughing and sneezing on your hands or, you know, rubbing your nose and touching your eye and you come home, you might not hand sanitize. I mean, there, it, it's a very complex way in which viruses transmit. And and that's why I think it's kind of, I don't know, I, I, I thought it a little bit comical when people were showing me videos of like somebody sneezing into a mask. And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm, it's going to catch a lot of droplets, right? But that's not, transmission occurs, you know, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It can happen at any moment. It could happen when you rub your eye. We, you know, nobody knows exactly when it's transmitting. And that's why we do randomized trials measuring the thing in itself, which is does the intervention, the policy intervention actually result in lower rates of transmission? That's why we do those those gold standard studies. That's why we don't rely on, you know, what happens in a, in a, in a high sensitivity camera, um, you know, with one sneeze, you know, that's, that's just totally different. I mean, it would be like approving drugs based on what they do in, in vitro assays, which, you know, thankfully we're not that bad yet. Uh, we don't do that. We still run <laughs> clinical trials. Well, there's early in uh, early in COVID nineteen, there was some gestures towards that for <laughs> right. sure, though too. And I mean, I think that that's exactly the issue: is that the real world transmission um, 
is is not something that you can extrapolate from from a lab scenario of any kind, honestly. And and so far, the data that we have is really, I mean, the randomized trials probably underestimate benefit of masks sure. and don't show any, honestly. Yes. And the observational trials probably overestimate yes, benefit. Yes. And so we're in this position, I think, of really lack of clarity on how much they help, although theoretically, it seems like they should. <laughs> yes. It's frustrating. Now let's talk for a second about what has surprised me. I guess I'm not surprised in any moment of crisis that there's going to be sort of a a strong vocal movement to stick their thumb in the eye of whatever people say. So, you know, I mean, whatever it is, uh, you know, there are are people who believe crazy things about vaccines and there are people who don't want to wear masks and, and they think it's a violation of freedoms or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of fringe views on that side. Um, so that's actually not surprised me too much that there's always going to be somebody who doesn't like any new rule. Um, ironically, they'll may turn a blind eye to rules that have existed for a long time that make no sense, but that's, that's the way life is. But what has surprised me is on the other side, many people who are normally, I think, very careful, um, articulate spokespeople for evidence-based medicine or thinking critically about medical evidence and what is shown and not shown, being very cautious, you know, really scientists. What has shocked me is that there's a faction of those scientists who, as you describe um, accurately, um, they've become zealots. Uh, They have really become people who are proselytizing on this issue. They really are gung-ho. They are really certain about the benefits of this policy. There is no room for doubt. Um, I actually might even go a little bit further and say uh, they tend to gang up. Uh, they don't like to hear anything that doesn't fit their worldview. Um, they are very forceful about that. Um, they're very strong. Um, what's going on on this side of it? What, these are people who I thought that, you know, they would be the ones who we need them to sort of champion um, doing the right studies. In order to get the right studies done, we need the sort of these kind of people, scientists, um, to say that we have uncertainty, we need to do studies, encourage policymakers to do the studies. Instead, you've seen them say that it's, uh, you're going to do this or or hell or high water. I mean, we really have to do this. What is going on on the psychology of that side? That's what I think I find more interesting, and or at least puzzles me more. You know, it's, it's actually been kind of um, dysfunctionally fascinating, because I think it's almost like a combination of... I mean, the whole medical and scientific community was incredibly stressed at the early stages of the pandemic. Um, every, everyone was. And um, medical professionals, I think, also had a lot of fear for their own safety. And there was, there was this pressure cooker of gaining knowledge. And so everyone became ravenous instant experts <laughs> on all sorts of things mm-hmm. in a very short time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff that was coming forward, like I said, had this intuitive appeal to it um, about your catching droplets, you're filtering, um, um, you're covering your mouth and nose. It seems like it's a no-brainer. And I think that it's possible that in times of stress, your evidence lens probably might be a little bit less um, apparent and less in, in, in evidence, so to speak. And then we also had a confirmation bias kind of thing where you saw people going down this path and going farther and farther down the path and surrounding themselves with people who are in the same area um, in terms of their thinking. And so it, it almost became like a, a faction. Um, and there is there's a lot of internal validation of the views. And then and then it became polarized. So so it seemed like to a large extent, a lot of the people in infection control and public health and infectious diseases 
um, you know, lifers in this particular area right. of study. I, I don't know that people were we were paying as much attention. Like I don't think we realized how far it was going in the other direction. Because then you come up for air and everyone's telling you you're an anti-masker, um, and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, like what? Like and and everyone's attacking the World Health Organization on matters of public health policy. And I mean, you can criticize different organizational responses, but at the end of the day. There's a lot of people who spent their entire lives working in these areas who have, I think, a bit more of a realistic and nuanced appreciation for the complexities of transmission, for example, and have a different way of looking at how you weight different streams of evidence. Um, but they've been largely steamrollered um, by by a group of uh, by by this group of people who I think is just zealous, as you said, and, and and coming at it often from different angles that might cause them to weigh different parts of evidence more strongly, like the aerosol experts and the uh, built environment, um, in environmental public health experts and engineers and chemists do mm -hmm. see things differently, and they see it through their lens. And so that type of, of information weighs more for them, whereas we're kind of interested in, did the person get infected? And uh, it's created a very strange scenario that I think is just showing us our silos are very dysfunctional and, and we really should probably be triangulating and working together instead of yelling at each other from our silos, which is what's currently happening. Yes, I agree. And I think that, I mean, I guess I, I wasn't so surprised that it's the the chemists, the the sort of the people who do sort of science where it really does tightly fit models and, and, and you can really sort of script it and you can map it and you get what you you know expect often. Um, I wasn't surprised that they were sort of gung-ho. What surprised me was that people who are typically doctors who live in the gray, you know, we live in gray, we live in uncertainty, we live with sort of often bad evidence and, and we know that just because things sound plausible, they don't always work. It surprised me that many of those doctors jumped the board uh, so quickly. And I guess, I mean, just want to echo something you say that, you know, the label mask or anti-mask, I mean, it's just it's such a, it's a strong, it's such a strong and polarizing label. I mean, the answer is I'm happy to do it and I do do it and I'm happy to recommend it. And I think it's reasonable to recommend. Um, but you also, you can recommend something and be honest about what is known and not known. And, and I think that that's the, that's the hardest part of policy and politics, which is um, people think you have to oversell things to get people to buy in. The reality is sometimes being absolutely, totally honest is the way you get the greatest buy-in, um, whether it's in the doctor's office or whether it's, you know, uh, to sort of sort of a public health measure, because then people understand if something switches, it's because, oh, why did it actually switch? Well, because this was the, you know, the evidence to begin with, and this is what actually went into it. But when you oversell things, I think you really do create sort of a false idea of science um, and what science knows and what science says. Um, it makes it harder for you to kind of reorient the ship somewhere down the road. Um, and it really leads to sort of a deep antitrust, uh, a deep loss of trust in science. And I, I'm very scared about that outcome. I, um, I share those concerns so much. And you're right that there have been some very prominent clinicians um, who have really like a large, like a very influential voice who have been, um, I think, on the pro-mask side to a degree that I think is not as critical of the evidence base. Mm -hmm. And that that actually does definitely burn bridges in terms of being able to say, well, you know, the advice has changed for these reasons. I literally have a bobcat outside my window right now. It's kind of scary. It actually looks like he's going to come through my wall, but I'm not sure if he will. So oh, wow. That's, that's one, of the, one of the luxuries of living out in Edmonton, huh? 
Yeah, he's like, okay, excellent. I'm on the first floor, so it's um, I don't know what they're doing. Um, however, so I, I do think that there's some people who have a who have a very influential voices that have kind of taken a less critical look at the evidence and have taken a very strong position. And I, I do think absolutely that it makes it harder to adjust your course in the face of evolving evidence. And I also think it's going to be harder to get the evidence with that with that as part of the picture. My experience has been that when I bring that up, when I say, look, I'm I'm not anti-mask. I just think that we have to promote the whole the whole package until we figure out what what parts are most important and in what situations they should be used. Is that there's a fairly strong defensive reaction to that, and um, and it's it's hard to know how to negotiate the way forward from that. But to be honest, with some of the treatment stuff, we were able to come back from the pre precipice. We are now seeing people being much more critical about you know just throwing everything at it in case it helps, which I think is a a human urge to to help. Um, does in, in fact um, make some of these things look more attractive, especially during times of a lot of stress. But I think that we're seeing that we're walking back from that um, less critical approach, the just try anything approach. And so hopefully we can walk back with the whole uh, masking and other um, public health uh, interventions and take it to a place where we can map our course carefully and plan what we need to do to maximize the benefit. And and I do think it's going to be of serious importance in the short term to try to get the public messaging back on track because it's been all over the map and I think people are confused and fed up and and they're basically just picking a team and going with it, yeah. which is I think the worst possible outcome. Right. Well, I guess I say I would say. I appreciate your enthusiasm. I'm not sure I share it 100%. I guess I would say I 100% agree with you that um, that the, the way we use drugs in critically ill COVID patients reflected, you know, all of the things you describe, anxiety, uncertainty, and it was irrational. And I'd never seen anything like it. People giving multiple unproven agents for a new viral condition. I'd never seen anything like that. And just so um, confident that that would be a good idea. Hydroxychloroquine, azithro, tocilizumab, um, steroids. And, and then... Later, when we do get, you know, a preprint from the recovery trial about dexamethasone, the same people who were very happy to give every single patient unproven drugs is suddenly a hypercritic about interaction coefficients, about pre-registration of protocol. They're the ultra critic of this randomized trial. I was like, what? You were 10 minutes ago, you're just giving random thing, the kitchen sink. But anyway, but I do think you're right. We've we've pulled back from that. The pendulum oh. definitely swung. It swung so much <laughs> it swung that it was so a much, little right? bewildering. It swung from yeah. no evidence to like, oh, this randomized trial has only it has only has 6,000 people. I need 60,000. <laughs> like, oh my God. Okay. Well, that's so, so true. So that was one thing. Uh, but the anti coagulation, you know, I'm a hematologist, that's still a, just a disaster. People are not, you know, we don't have the data yet, but they're very happy to just anticoagulate full dose, you know, all these sorts of things, because they believe um, that's going to help. Um, that's another conversation. The, the sort of the, 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 the mask thing, I think, I think it's a lot, I think it's going to be lost. I don't know what it'll be people will back away from, um, because I don't know what has happened, but it has become something that, um, something happens in the, in the zeitgeist and, and things that should be the matter of sort of, I don't know, meticulous appraisal of evidence, which I think is what you're trying to do. They become they become interchangeable with identity. And this has become something that people have identified with. They've signed petitions. They've, you know, have hashtags. They've active, they're activists on this issue. And once it gets to that level, it becomes internalized in that way. I don't think it'll go. I just think they're, if anything, if anyone listened to this whole interview, they can be quite upset. Um, even though we're not saying anything that I think anyone should be upset about. Um, but I do think, I think it's become internalized. And once it becomes part of your identity, um, you know, it's it's hard to sort of change. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's a problem. Um, 
and it's problem, you know, we're just seeing one little slice of this problem, but this is a broader societal problem. And I guess I'm not sure how to address it. Um, an intolerance for people trying to take nuanced views on an issue is a problem in society today. I, I'm going to have to agree with you, actually. And I think that your point about when it becomes part of your identity, you, it's very hard to let go. I think that that's actually a true thing. Um, I, I do think that at some point, should we develop um, an evidence base that more clearly supports a particular course of action that anyone who self-defines themselves as an evidence-based medicine um, aficionado or even just a clinician who's trying to apply best practices might have to have that long dark night of the soul to figure out how they're going to change their messaging. But I think that it would take quite a lot of reframing and data to, to do that. I, I think that that's actually a good point. Maybe I was being uh, an optimist. Well, I wish which I, is hard these days. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so take home message is, um, you know, you're infectious disease doctor, you're an advocate for many components um, to a public health strategy to curb the spread of the virus. Um, you've also looked through all the randomized control trials as I did many months ago. And um, when you listen to the rhetoric, and you've read the studies, you like me felt like there's a disconnect here. Um, and that disconnect is we're overstating things a bit. Um, and, and that might not be the best thing for science. Is that a fair summary of your view? Very, very much so. And I also think that um, it does it does seem to me like informed consent when we're telling people that we're recommending something. We should be able to give them a realistic idea of what it is that we're recommending and what we think the possible benefits or risks might be. And we're really not in that position um, right now for masks particularly, but we can say that you know, these these measures have been shown to be useful in a variety of settings and then leave the measures as a bundle and promote the bundle and try to do the studies. And um, but it's it's hard to to uh, de-escalate um, the rhetoric and and figure out a way to try to get things a little bit back uh, more in the center where we can have sensible conversations. It's a real challenge. Yeah. Well, that's well said. So, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, I really appreciated your thread and I think listeners um, should check it out. Um, and also, I mean, I think people should actually do, um, you know, people who are very interested in this should read some of the randomized control trials that have been done. Um, and, and you can also look at the observational studies, but I think it's they're worth taking with a grain of salt because they do have some notorious kind of issues, um, as they do in many places in clinical medicine where observational studies can misestimate um, therapeutic efficacy. Um, and anyway, that's a, that's something that there's going to be some new publications coming soon. Um, Dr. Saxinger, I'll give you the last word, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And and I think for, I mean, I think for really kind of putting your finger on something that uh, it's, it's difficult to talk about, I think now, uh, especially on a medium like Twitter, I think it's better in a podcast. Uh, people can kind of see us frame it a little bit more clearly um, with a little bit more nuance. Um, but, you know, I, I went to say, actually, there was somebody who replied to you. Um, I got to read it to you because I think it's just, it's just so emblematic of, of, I think where we are as a society. Um, it might've been one I chose not to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When you stick your neck out, you're like, oh, dear, I don't think I'm going to go back there for a while. <laughs> oh, here it is. Um, you overly rely on statistical significance to argue against mandatory hashtag 
Mask for Canada and ignore the well-founded science-based precautionary principle, ignoring decision under uncertainty rules unwitting, unwittingly results in poor pandemic risk assessment and then just puts a lot of people in. And then you had a defender, Amanda Hempel. Uh, she's not saying we should ignore the decision. She's saying we should be intellectually honest about the fact that data for masks is poor and that masks should be part of a bigger conversation on prevention strategies, but they have become the near exclusive focus. Ah, that's well said, Amanda. And then she That is very well said. That's yes. very well said. And then Dr. Maria writes back, <laughs> precisely the point about ignoring the rules for decisions under uncertainty and science-based precautionary principles. Often lack of data is used to defend decisions to not take action to protect public health. It's also a lack of understanding of pandemic risk. And she again, again, she's not saying don't make decisions. She's saying be honest about the uncertainty. Don't go around saying it's simple or certain when it's not, because frankly, that is lying. And then this person said, uh, to accuse someone of lying because you don't agree is disrespectful. And then says, I'm not accusing you of personally lying, just certainly not because I disagree with you. I'm just trying to point out that claiming the science behind mass is clear and simple is false. I was like, oh, this is just, this is Twitter 101. I mean, this is, uh, can, if you don't mind, I'll just say what I think is some, something that I've observed. Um, which is there there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of free time and they sit on Twitter and and they're just looking to get offended. They're just looking to get offended. And here you will here you come along and say something that's really, I think, very sensible and and fair. And and Amanda recognizes that. And they just want to be offended and want to portray you to be a villain and portray this. And and I just think, you know, this is just one tiny little nugget. I mean, but it's this is just endemic. This is just what I would say 50% of Twitter is just this. Somebody looking to just get 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 riled up about something and i think it speaks to just people are bored and people people are looking to have some entertainment and i just don't know what else is motivating is this anyone i've few people are reading this and it's not persuading anybody i mean what is the point of this kind of pushback um but i guess it's fair to say um i mean you've gotten pushback for this uh it's i think it's a very inappropriate um i don't know how do you feel about it on on your end of it um, I'm, I'm trying to have a thicker skin because I think what happens a lot is you see these exchanges um, on Twitter that I think are pretty, uh, you know, pretty heated. But then you also have a whole bunch of people on Twitter who don't say anything. They're yeah. watching. Yeah. And if you say something that they think, oh, that sounds sensible and that person is not, you know, some crazy rabid raver, like that person is actually making sense to me. I think that really when I'm putting things forward now and I'm trying to learn how to do this because I'm a Twitter neophyte, really, mm. I'm just putting things forward for those people who are for just, audience, just taking yeah, it in I agree. and yeah. not, and not the people who are, you know, reacting um, so strongly because sometimes I literally think with that threads specifically, people were reacting to what they thought I said without actually even reading what I said. Oh, of course. You know, it was it was really strange. I was like, <laughs> what? Or what did you read? And and it was like actually mystifying, which is when I stopped looking. Um, but I but I do think that um but 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 I think that that exchange is is basically telling you where the the polarization is. It's really it's really profoundly polarized, yeah. and it's a problem. It's a problem. No, I mean people people re saying that you said things you didn't say. That's that's Twitter. I mean I said something like you know the U the U S has like nine times as many cases as the U K, and you know we have not done nearly as as many I think uh, therapeutic randomized control trials as like recovery and 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 discovery and 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 solidarity. You know we're not doing as good a job in my opinion. I said something like that, and then somebody somebody made it out to be like, oh, you don't think the UK can do good studies? And I was like, I didn't say that at all. What I'm just saying that we, I mean, that's not what I said. I was like, but that's, that's you know, that's the, you have to have thick skin. Um, I think your thread was, you know, it obviously generated a huge response. A lot of people retweeted. I think there are a lot of people like you, um, a lot more people like you who are honestly a little bit nervous about 
saying what you said um, because they're afraid of this kind of reaction. Um, and that's a shame because if we if we get to a point where people who are reasonable and who've looked at evidence and have a lot of experience in a field are not comfortable saying what they think, um, that's a bad situation for public policy. It's only the two poles talking to each other. Um, but Dr. Saxinger, oh, that's so true. Yeah, Dr. Saxinger, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate your time, and um, uh, we'd love to have you back uh, on any sort of ID-related issues or anything you know you want to talk about. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. I really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of share ideas. That was really useful for me too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klosner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.